It's somewhat of a, a, a bittersweet day for me because we've reached the final sermon in our No Greater Love sermon series. And you know when you research and write on a subject for three plus months, you become pretty invested in it. And it's been a real pleasure to focus on the subject of God's love for all these weeks. And although I really am looking forward to our next series of sermons, it's a little tough to move on to something else, particularly when you've been so focused on a subject as wonderful as the love of God. The good news is that we've really only scratched the surface, you know, on this subject. And when it comes to God's love, and since that theme is really the common thread throughout the whole of Scripture, you can rest assured that this topic will not only find its way into probably all future sermons, but there will most assuredly be many more sermon series to come on that subject. Also, before we step into this next series of sermons, which I really am looking forward to sharing with you and writing, we're going to hear from a good friend of mine and one of the missionaries that we've been supporting. I think we have a picture of their family. Next Sunday, Jason Wilson will be here with us. Jason and Sarah and their kids have been serving in Madagascar. Um, he's a good friend of mine from Alaska. We served in a church together in Alaska and then he went to Madagascar. I came here. And they've just recently finished that assignment. It was a short-term missions assignment and they're now in Texas where they'll be taking a short sabbatical, some much needed rest, and then pursuing what God has next for them. So in the meantime, We've invited them to come and visit with us, and unfortunately, Sarah and the kids won't be able to make th this trip next week, but Jason will be here. So plan to come next Sunday, if you can, to hear from him. He's going he's gonna to speak um, in place of me preaching as he's going to share with us about what God's been doing, and I'm sure it's going to be pretty cool because they've seen and done some pretty amazing things over there. Now then, for today... We're going to look at our final installment of our No Greater Love study. If you'd like, you can turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And uh, we'll read what is probably one of the most definitive passages on the subject of love in all of Scripture. And we'll be using the entirety of chapter 13 as our main text today, albeit a short chapter. And as always, we'll compare that with some other relevant Scriptures as well, okay? Keep in mind as we read <clears throat> that this letter was written, of course, by the Apostle Paul in about 55 AD to the church in the city of Corinth, this ancient city. And it was written toward the end of Paul's three-year ministry time in Ephesus. And interestingly enough, even though it's entitled 1 Corinthians, this was not Paul's first letter ever written to the Corinthians. If you read chapter 5 in the same book, verses 9 through 11, you see that there had been at least one other letter written by Paul to the Corinthians before this one, which we don't have today. So this letter, 1 Corinthians, is the first letter of Paul to the church in Corinth to be canonized as part of the Bible, okay? And that's pertinent to this discussion because Paul had this ongoing dialogue with the Corinthians over some time concerning their behavior and the need for change and how they were treating each other. And according to 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11, which references these specific issues about how the Corinthian Christians were conducting themselves in, the, in this previous letter by Paul to the church. And then you look throughout 1 Corinthians and throughout 2 Corinthians and we see Paul going over and over again some of these same issues. So this wasn't some kind of aside that is mentioned in passing. Paul is basically hammering the Corinthian church repeatedly about their behavior toward one another. And I think that it bears some close scrutiny, you know, some examination on our part, and particularly chapter 13 as it relates directly to the subject of love 
which we've been studying, all right? And as we go through this, bear in mind that the city of Corinth was on the isthmus between the Greek mainland and the Peloponnesian Peninsula. It was on this strip of land between the Aegean region and the western Mediterranean, right in the center of a major trade route. And because of its strategic location, Corinth was at the crossroads of several different cultures and religions and uh, societal practices. It was very diverse. And like most of the cities that thrived on trade in those times, Corinth was full of sexual immorality and corruption and all kinds of, of different religious beliefs. We see it not only in biblical writings, but in non-biblical writings from that time. I've never been to Las Vegas. But I imagine it must have been sort of like the Vegas of ancient times, if you can imagine that. And then along comes Paul. And he plants a church there. And like so many new churches, there's this initial excitement because God is doing something new. And there are people that are coming to Christ and turning their lives around. And so you have this new local church that's all fired up about God moving in their city. But eventually, as so often is the case, unfortunately, the local culture begins to seep back into the life of the church. And the pressures and preferences of society begin to influence the church. And the people who are a part of this local body, once again, begin thinking more about themselves and their own interests and less about each other. And things to go, uh, begin going a bit haywire. Okay? And through it all is Paul trying his level best to bring them back to this solid footing in Christ. And he's reminding them that love, God's love, is what changed their hearts to begin with. And it is that same love working through us as believers that will keep us in right stead with him and we, with each other, all right? And the key that Paul is emphasizing, which we've been learning through this series, is that this life in service to Christ is not about us, okay? It's not about me. And what I can attain or achieve for myself. No, this life is all about giving myself away for the sake of others. Alright? And in short, Paul is saying, don't go back to your old selfish ways. Remember that the love that you have, or at least that you're supposed to have, conquers everything. That you would allow, everything you would allow to muck up your faith, your walk with Christ and the body that you're a part of. All right, And we looked at chapter 5 a few weeks ago and how Paul says, Judge one another within the church so as to hold one another accountable and always do that in love. But as far as the world is concerned, do not judge the world. That's God's job. Your job is to love those outside of the church and let God be their judge. That's our job. But inside the church, by all means, Paul says, hold your brothers and sisters within the body accountable to the standards by which Jesus himself said that we are to live. And I have to tell you, I often wonder if non-Christians, those outside of the church, would look at us differently if every time they saw Christians outside of our gatherings, rather than being critical or judgmental of them, we were showing love and grace to everyone that we encounter. And yet when we're inside the church, they see us, yes, expressing our love and commitment to one another without a doubt, and yet also holding each other to a very high standard of living, the standard of living demonstrated by Jesus for us to follow. Okay, that's just a thought. But clearly, God judges those outside the church. We judge one another inside the church. And Paul spells that out in chapter 5. And that doesn't mean, by the way, that we tear each other apart inside the church. We judge one another 
in love. In, in John 13, 35, Jesus told his disciples, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Okay? Listen, the greatest demonstration of love between human beings in this world should be most evident within the church of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? I'm going to say that again. The greatest demonstration of love between human beings in this world should be most evident within the church of Jesus Christ. Christians should be known for their love, not their prosperity gospel, not their political persuasions, not for our buildings. We should be known by our love. He says, Jesus says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have really nice cars. That's not what he said. If you have cool bumper stickers on your cars. No. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. By the t-shirts that you wear. No. By the music that you listen to. Not that. If you have love for one another. This is why I harp on you all the time, being careful about Facebook. We get on a public forum for the whole world and we rip each other to shreds over some point of doctrine that's really a bit inconsequential. Okay? We have to show love for one another. Jesus said, this is how they will know who you are, that you're my disciples. Okay? And one aspect of that love is holding each other inside the church to a high moral biblical standard of living, which Christ set out for us himself. That also doesn't mean controlling each other. Don't misunderstand me. Some have tried that in their own sick perversion of the gospel. Jim Jones and some of these guys, right? What, is, what it does mean is standing with one another hand in hand, arm in arm, through the good times and the bad times, and helping each other walk through this life fully committed to Christ. And when one falls, we all gather around him, and what? We help him back up and walk with him or her through the tough times until that brother or sister in Christ is brought back to a place of health and wholeness within the body. That is the love that the world needs to see within the church, and that is exactly what Paul is addressing in our text today in chapter 13, okay? So, Let's work through this chapter together and see how Paul answers some relevant questions about life and about love. 1 Corinthians 13. Let's start with the first three verses and we'll look at the question, what does life look like without love? All right. And remember, Paul is writing this to the church. This is written to church people. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Okay? In these first three verses, Paul makes three really strong statements about the Christian who has no love or expresses no love in his life. Verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In Corinth, people worshipped all these different gods, okay? It was a diverse society and there were what were referred to at that time as these mystery cults. These groups of people 
that worship the God of nature and the God of animals and the reproductive God and so on. And one of the common practices of these mystery cults in that time was to march through the, cities, uh, the city streets through Corinth and they would bang these large copper gongs and these metal symbols to either invoke these mystery gods or scare off demons, which apparently they didn't realize were all the same thing. But to the people who weren't a part of these mystery cults, this practice was incredibly offensive. Imagine, you're out on your terrace on a lovely summer day, drinking a cup of afternoon tea, and along come these zealots banging these gongs and cymbals right past your house. It was very offensive. It was very off-putting. And Paul is telling the Corinthian Christians, who, by the way, were all very familiar with this practice of the gongs and cymbals, that no matter how spiritual you are, no matter how religious you are, even if you speak in the tongues of men and angels, if you don't have love for one another, you are at best going to offend everyone around you, just like the mystery cults that march around hitting their gongs and cymbals. Okay? And look, this is as relevant today as ever. We can display very impressive spiritual behavior in church. We can be very religious. We can be very churchy. But if we don't express real, authentic love in everything that we do, we're only going to offend others. Because when we express our convictions and our beliefs and our theology and our doctrines, when we sing and we shout and we talk about the Bible, that's all good. But if there's no love evident in our expressions and in our interactions with each other, then all we're doing is making ourselves look self-righteous. And that can be very offensive. Sort of like a clanging cymbal in your ear that won't stop. So Paul's making this point based on this pagan practice that the Corinthians were all very familiar with that if you're particularly religious and you impose your religious expressions on everyone around you but you're devoid of love, at best you're going to offend those around you, okay? Verse 2. He says, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. And so instead of letting off a bit, Paul turns up the heat another notch on the church in this verse. He says, look, if you don't have love, you completely diminish your significance as a tool to be used by God. In other words, God can't do a whole lot with you when you are without love. No matter how much you know about scripture, no matter how much success you've had in your ministry, no matter how discerning or prophetic you are, even if you have faith to move mountains, which is a direct reference to Jesus' own statement about faith in Matthew 17, 20, by the way, Paul says no matter how effective your ministry appears to be, if you do not have love, God can't do much with you. Okay? He says, if I have all this, all these great abilities all this great faith and all knowledge and wisdom and insight, but I'm without love, then I am nothing. I honestly believe that this is at least part of the reason that the church in America has been struggling over the past couple of decades to reach the lost. And at least part of the reason that we've seen a mass exodus from the church of young adults. Look, we're more educated in theology and doctrine than in any other time in recent history in our, in our country. Church leadership, 
clergy is on the whole becoming more educated every year. We have more tools and resources available to us to study and understand scripture than ever before. Information technology has enabled us to see and experience the effective moving of God all around the world simply by accessing the internet. We're building bigger churches and more effectively run religious organizations every single year, but we're losing the younger generation at breakneck speed. Why? Because great oration from the pulpit, impressive technology, and amazing facilities can only carry us so far. If we don't learn to engage this unchurched, unreached generation with a simple message of love and grace and redemption through Jesus Christ, we're going to lose them altogether. Amen. Our 20-somethings aren't impressed with a good light show and a cool graphics anymore. They're second-generation Pink Floyd fans. I actually talked to these 20-year-olds today that listened to Pink Floyd. And apparently Pink Floyd is immortal because they've been on tour for like the last 150 years. <laughs> but once you've seen Pink Floyd in concert, Sunday morning at the local megachurch isn't going to impress. Unless there's something being offered that transcends the lights and sound and surface attractions, okay? Without love, Paul says, we are nothing. Verse 3. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. This is Paul's strongest statement yet. Because even the ultimate act of sacrifice, he says, is completely wasted if carried out for the wrong reasons. Even in sacrifice, Paul says, we can be motivated by selfish desires. So the Corinthians, just like the Pharisees, were giving. They were giving of themselves. They were giving their time. They were giving their resources. They were giving their devotion. But it was all for show. It was all for personal gain. It became this competition to see who could be the most impressive giver. And Paul says, forget it. It doesn't matter what you give. Even if you give up your entire life and even your body, if your motivation isn't pure love, you gain nothing. And all your efforts are wasted. So we'd all do well to monitor ourselves as we serve in church. You know, we should ask ourselves, am I serving others for their sake or am I serving others for my own sake? Am I motivated by real love for my brothers and sisters in Christ or do I just want to look good in front of everybody else? And I'll tell you this, if there's any one single person in the church who has to ask that question, the most often and watch his true intentions closer than anyone else. It's the pastor. We stand up in front of everyone every week and lead worship and teach and pray for people and on we go. And it is so very easy as the pastor to allow your motivation to turn from love for the body and love for Christ to self-promotion. And obviously there's a long track record within the church, unfortunately, of pastors who have become more concerned about their own image and their own interests and less about the body. And once those selfish desires really kick in, I'll tell you, love goes right out the back door and it never leads to anywhere good. Self-promoting pastors damage the church, weaken the testimony of Christ, and in the end gain absolutely nothing but empty platitudes from a superficial religious culture that has infected much of the American church. That's a pretty strong statement. It's true. Without love, 
we gain nothing. We are nothing. And at best, we can hope to achieve is to offend our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's a lot in three verses, isn't it? You know, when you got a letter in the mail and the Apostle Paul's name was on the return address, it had to be a bit of a sinking feeling. This guy could rock your whole world in three verses and he's just getting started. The good news is, at least in chapter 13, he starts to shift gears in the next four verses. So let's move on, breathe a little easier, and we'll see how Paul answers the next question. Verses 4 through 7, what does life look like with love? He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It's worth pointing out here that Paul uses verbs in describing love, okay? Which highlights the fact that real love is always expressed through our behavior. And these verbs are all in the present continuous tense in the original language, which demonstrates behavior that has become habitual, constant. For a person who possesses this love, the love of Christ, verses 4 through 7 that we just read, that's a way of life. Now, John first, uh, excuse me, first John 4, 8 tells us that God is love. And we know that by God's love, Jesus came and walked the earth and lived among men and was, in fact, the only person ever to live on this planet who has truly fulfilled the lifestyle described in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 that we just read. So quickly, listen, 1 John 4, 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And we know that only a perfect Jesus would be sufficient to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, verse 11, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and in his love is perfected. And in us, his love is perfected in us. So again, this is talking obviously about love. It's in the context of our behavior toward one another and it directly references Jesus Christ as the manifestation of God's love on earth. The only perfect model of love that we've ever had since the creation of the world. So if we go back now and we read verses 4 through 7 in 1 Corinthians 13 and substitute Jesus' name for the word love. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Okay? That's a good exercise to put into perspective just how Jesus lived. He was and is perfect. Now, let's take it a step further. 1 John 4 also says that we're supposed to live through Christ and that we should love like he loved. 
And I believe this is what Paul would want the Corinthians to do. So in place of the word love in 1 Corinthians 13, let's insert our own name. Okay? I'll insert my name as I read it. But you, just as we do this, you do the same thing. Insert your name in the place of love. Here we go. Rob is patient and kind. Usually. <laughs> Rob does not envy or boast. Well, occasionally he, he does. He is not arrogant or rude. Now, I will say I definitely try not to be. He does not insist on his own way. That is definitely true unless I really, really want something bad enough. <laughs> Rob is not irritable or resentful. That is absolutely correct, except before coffee in the morning. Rob does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. I, I'm trying to claim that one. Rob bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Yes. As long as I'm having a good day. How did you fare with your own name in there? And listen, before you get too depressed from this little exercise, understand that although we may never completely realize this description of ourselves to the fullest extent in this lifetime, God gives us the grace and power and strength and wisdom to come a little bit closer to perfected love in our lives every day. It's all about forward progress, okay? Which means constant, honest evaluation of ourselves, which is exactly what Paul is trying to get the Corinthians to do by this letter. Realize that you've not attained perfect love in your life and do something about it every day, okay? And how do we develop that? How do we, how do we get better at loving more and becoming more like Christ? The answer is by serving others more and ourselves less. The more we focus our time and energy and money and passion on serving others and less on ourselves, God will instill a love for people in you that you may have never known before. But we have to do our part. Where we all fall short is in those times when we get this like tunnel vision, if you know what I mean. And, and all we're focused on is ourselves or our problem or our project or our passion or whatever it is. And I'll be the first to admit it's easy sometimes to become so focused on myself that I become blinded to what's going on around me without even realizing it. Years ago, my wife and I, uh, before we went to Alaska, we were going to have a party for our worship team, a thank you thing. And so we were going to get door prizes. And she said, hey, we need to go to the store and we need to get all these door prizes. And I said, okay. And I'm, I'm on my phone. If you know me for more than a minute, you've usually seen me like this. And I'm texting somebody or something. I'm having a conversation. So she's like, let's go. So I like follow her ankles out the door. And she's like, I'll drive. And I'm like, I know you will because we do this all the time. And I get in the passenger seat and she starts driving. And we drive across town. Literally, I haven't looked up once. I'm texting. It's like tunnel vision. I'm locked in. The car comes to a stop. I have no idea where we are. I hear her door open. She says, you coming in? Yeah. I open the door. I get out. I follow her ankles up to the front of some building. Literally have not looked up yet. The door opens. I run in behind her so I don't have to put my hand on the door. And we're walking around this store. And I'm following around. And I'm, I'm totally engrossed in my phone conversation or whatever it was I was doing on the phone. And she stops about halfway down an aisle and she said, you know, this would go a lot faster if you would actually help me. And I said, okay, what do you need me to do? So she tears the list in half, hands it to me, and says, 
try and find this stuff. And I said, great. So I put my phone in my pocket and I look up and I'm in this store. I don't know where I am, it doesn't really matter. And I start walking up and down the aisles looking for stuff. And I find the first item on my list. And I pick it up and I'm like, yeah, this is cool. This is what I'm looking for. Turn it around, there's no price tag. So I start walking up and down the aisles and I see an employee and it looks like she's stocking shelves or something. So I walk up and I said, ma'am, excuse me. She said, yes. And I said, I'd like to buy this item, but I don't know how much it costs, there's no price. And she looks at me with this sort of funny grin on her face and she says, well, sir, that's $1. And I said, really? And she said, yeah, really? I said, okay, that's a good price. So I put it in my basket and I walk away. And I'm going up and down the aisles and I'm about two aisles over and I find the second item and I pick it up and I'm inspecting it. This is what I need. There's no price. It's a little odd. So I go two aisles back over, back down to the same girl. I said, ma'am, I'm sorry. I know you're working and I don't mean to interrupt you, but I want to buy this item and there's no price. And she looks at me inquisitively and she says, really? And I said, yeah, there's no price. She's like, no, no, it's a dollar. I said, hey, that's a good price. <laughs> so I put it in my basket and I walk away. I never said I was particularly smart. <laughs> so I'm like halfway across the store and I find my third item. I pick it up, true story, flip it around. There's no price. Now I'm getting frustrated. I start grabbing stuff from the shelves. There's no price on anything. So I truck it halfway back across the store. I walk up and I said, ma'am, look. I know you're trying to do your thing and I apologize and I'm a little frustrated to be honest because I'm trying to shop here and nothing in your entire store has any prices on it. <laughs> I want to buy this item and I don't know how much it costs and now she's not laughing anymore. She looks a little frustrated. She said, sir, that item is one dollar. In point of fact, everything in this store is one dollar. <laughs> and I stared at her for a few seconds and I said, this is a dollar store, isn't it? <laughs> she said, bingo. <laughs> All right. Yes. So I walked away feeling like the complete idiot that I am. Finished my shopping. That's a little bit of like tunnel vision. That's what I'm talking about. You know, you don't recognize your surroundings. I wasn't able to help my wife who needed my help. I wasn't much good to anybody because I was so focused on what I was doing and not paying attention to anything else around me. It's kind of like that when it comes to serving Christ. We really have to spend more time focused on others and less time on ourselves if we are to have any real hope of loving others like Christ loves. Okay? And now let's continue. This is the last section of the chapter, verses 8 through 13, and we'll finish up. Rather than uh, answer a question in this part, Paul really just makes a statement about love. In essence, he says that love conquers all. Okay? Love never ends, verse 8. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. If there's any question left at this point about 
just exactly where love comes from, Paul puts it to rest in verse 8 when he says love never ends. The Greek word for ends in verse 8 is ekpipto, which literally means falls down. Okay? This love that Paul is writing to the Corinthians about never falls down. It never fails. It never falters. It endures forever. Even in the face of death, love remains because it is eternal. And that kind of love can only come from God. And then he goes on to compare God's eternal love and the value of it to the temporary gifts that the Corinthians were placing so much of their focus on. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. See, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. The mirrors in Corinth at that time, they were just polished metal, right? They didn't have the glass like we do now, which at best, it offered like a blurred image, a poor reflection of the true image that Paul is saying, but the Corinthians hold so dear cannot even compare to what is coming in Christ. Okay? Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And then he ends this chapter with such a definitive statement about love. Verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. He says, look, even among the best gifts that we have from God, love is better than all of them. Love conquers all. Love is head and shoulders above and beyond every good gift that is available to us. And it was the one gift from God that the Corinthians were lacking. And I would submit to you today that God is calling his church today back to love. 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love. I believe that the church has excelled in so many areas in our lifetime. But without love, none of that will amount to anything. Well, how far is too far? How do I know how far to take this, this love thing? The answer is, you can't love too much. In fact, this is the one area in life where God tells us to go ahead and be excessive. No amount of love is too much. And look, here's the point of all this. It's what Paul was trying to say to the Christians at Corinth. If you want your life to count for something, you'd better learn how to love each other. If you want all your efforts to amount to something that transcends this life, something that remains forever, your motivation must be love. Not love for ourselves, love for others, and, and love for the Father. And I'll tell you, I see it happening in this church. I see you serving one another and preferring one another in love. I do. I see you serving our kids, even though there are probably a thousand other things you could be doing. I see some of you calling others who are sick at home or sick in the hospital and encouraging them, not because I ask you to, but because you're loving them the way God loves you. I see you helping each other outside of the church where there are needs at home, working on cars and houses for each other, not because it profits you, but because you're being Christ's hand extended. And I am so proud of you. I'm so proud of this church. I can hardly contain it when I think about you. Can we keep that going? Can we press on? Don't let your love fall down, falter, grow weak. Let's not become like the Corinthians who are changing into this self-serving church. Let's spend ourselves utterly and completely in the service of others. Can we do that? 
in closing this sermon series, and, and we'll finish up right now, there's one more question that I'd like for Paul to answer because he does it so well. And we need to know this morning that the reason that we even have the capacity to love others at all is because of the way that the Father loves us. And Paul drives this point home in his letter to the Romans. It's not our main text, but Romans chapter 8, 35 through 39. We've read it before in this series. Paul answers the question, who can separate us from the love of God? Let's read it. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are what? More than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. More than conquerors. God's love conquers everything. All of our fears, all of our hurt, all of our depression, all of our stress, all of our difficulties, everything. You are loved by God. Let's go and share that same love with each other and with a hurting world. Let's be known by our love. Let's build a reputation in this community as a church that loves God and that loves each other and that loves everyone that we encounter. I believe we can do that. I believe we can do that. Do you? Amen. I know you do. I know that you do. Let's pray.